to Spark Science. My name's Regina Barbara DeGraff, a scientist at Western Washington University and a SACNista. A SACNista is a person who's part of the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, or SACNIS for short. This episode is another interview from the SACNIS conference in Hawaii. This one is really special because it features my favorite conference buddy and fellow physicist, Dr. Desiree Whitmore. Dr. Whitmore and I had way too much fun talking to each other in this interview. We talked about the history of one of the first hands-on science museums, the Exploratorium. We talk about how we communicate our science and how that's not dumbing things down. And of course, we talk about our favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. We hope you enjoy listening to Two Nerds Having a Great Time. Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. And I'm here at SACNIS 2019. I think this is probably, I don't even know what number of SACNIS conference where I just hang out with you, Desiree. Um, Many. Well, the first one that we hung out was 2014, I think. Yeah. So at least five. At least five. Well, only five, I guess. Which I hang out with you every single time. Uh, Dr. Desiree Whitmore is a photonics physicist. You are also basically like the chief physicist for the Exploratorium. Yes, I'm the senior physics educator. Uh, I like for the I like my term better. Chief physicist sounds kind of dope, actually. Yeah. So like, I'm not gonna say don't call me that because that's right. cool. So the Exploratorium is uh, the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception, and it's a museum in San Francisco, California, and it was founded 50 years ago by uh, Dr. Frank Oppenheimer. Oh, the Oppenheimer. The Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um, not Robert Oppenheimer. So there's J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's famously known as um, the father of the atomic bomb. Right. Um, but Frank is his little brother, who also worked on the atomic bomb. He worked on the Metall- <laughs> he worked on the Manhattan Project right. with his brother, um, and felt equally responsible for it. He's he was an amazing physicist as well, and because of uh, the McCarthy era, he actually became blacklisted as a scientist because he attended a communist party event one day like as a grad student and just forever Um, you know never can be a scientist no so um after the manhattan project and like the mccarthy era like they were going after people and so he got blacklisted as a scientist he couldn't travel to go anywhere he couldn't do anything it was kind of terrible moved to colorado just chilling there for a while um like he was farming He's not a farmer, he's a physicist, <laughs> but he was farming. And the local schools were like, hey, we have this famous physicist here. Like, can you teach our high school physics class for us? And so he did. So he started teaching at the, at the high school there. And these students, you know, there's nothing there where he lived. It's farmland. Um, so he's teaching these kids physics. And he's like, how can I teach them real physics? Oh, we're learning about engines. Let's go to the junkyard and tear apart an engine. You're going to learn about torque, and you're going to learn about, like, what momentum means. And so he had these kids going out and doing real-life science in the real world. And so all of a sudden, like, national science fairs were being won by all these kids in Colorado. Yeah. And people are like, why are all these kids in, like, this random town in Colorado winning all the science fairs? And they're like, oh, because Frank Oppenheimer's there. That's interesting, right? And, they're, you know, what's your secret? And he's like, well, hands-on science and, like, interacting with the real world I think is how you learn science. And so he also was like, you know, I don't know how long I want to teach for, but he was also thinking like, he had this vision for a way of educating the general public. So he believed that if the general public understood science on a very basic level, that the government of the United States would have never dropped that bomb, 
right? So like he and the other scientists who worked on the bomb were all against using it. So they developed it for the sake of science and to like beat the Germans, but then they developed it and they tested it in New Mexico. And they were like, oh my God, what did we do? What have we done? And so they all like approached the government. They wrote letters and letters and letters, like appealing to the government, do not, do not use this weapon. Like, I understand we made it and you wanted us to make it and you paid us to make it, but they used it. And millions of people were murdered. So he decided like, hey, what if I like create a museum um, where you can learn science by doing, like the way he taught in Colorado. And so he, you know, went around the world, he and his wife, they traveled around the world looking at different so museums. what year was this? Because I, I like how you said it. You're like, now museums are all hands-on, but this was like the first one. Yeah, this was in the 60s. Yeah. Um, so when he first started thinking about it, it was like early, mid-60s. And he, he and his wife go kind of like on a tour of the world. And they look at what science museums are like around the world um, to kind of get an idea of what's out there and what they should do. And then they come back and they look for places in the United States, like where should we start our museum? And they found this place in San Francisco that's called um, the Palace of Fine Arts. This giant like old building. It was a former firehouse. It was a former like newspaper factory or something. It was not used and it's huge. And so Frank worked it out so like he could rent it for some ridiculous thing, like a dollar a year or something like that. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And they were like, sure, whatever, you're a scientist, it's cool. And so he did. He, you know, brought some scientific equipment into the museum and started, like, building things. Like, building random apparatus mm -hmm. that teach science, right? And one day, the rumor is, one day he just kind of left the door open. And people just started wandering in. Like, people walking through the park. Like, oh, look, this building's open. What? Like, yeah. I walk here all the time. I've never seen that. I just look at ducks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they walked in. And, like, people loved it. And they just started playing and having fun with science. Mm -hmm. And it was just, like, this old, rustic, open, empty space where you can just play with physics. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, like, the idea is so romantic. And I love it. And it makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, and so from there, it turned into a huge phenomenon like it's an amazing institution that is still here 50 years later and now it's a lot bigger we don't have like you know the 10 or 20 exhibits that he had made then which were handmade right like do you still have them like in museum-esque area where like everything you can touch except for these no our museum is not like that um <laughs> our museum is all hands-on there's nothing you can't touch there are some of the original exhibits and we just kind of refurbish them and make them better if we oh, can cool. Cool. um and some of them are like literally from 1969, right? The museum became this amazing thing and people started coming to the museum. Um, and, you know, Frank was hiring like real life scientists who like loved to teach science and they were just kind of exploring. And people started coming and it became amazing. And what he noticed was like phys local physics teachers in San Francisco started coming to the museum. And they're like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? And they interact with Frank and, you know, he'll teach them some stuff sometimes. And he, they started bringing their classes mm. to the Exploratorium. So like, hey kids, we're going on a field trip, Exploratorium. They come to the Exploratorium and the teachers are using our exhibits to teach their classes, right? And this is like 70s and the 80s, right? Yeah. And then they see Frank, cause he's there. He's yeah. just chilling there. He's got his dog and his cane and he's hanging out. And they're like, hey, Frank, like, can you teach my class for me? Like, this is amazing. You're an amazing physicist. And he's yeah. like, um, I'm kind of like running a museum. So no, I can't yeah. really teach you, teach your class right now. I don't have time for that. Um, but I'll tell you what, I can teach you, right? And so he started this thing that he called the Teacher Institute, where he would bring in high school physics teachers and he would teach them physics. 
yeah. the way that he would teach physics if he was still teaching physics. Yeah. And he would do it with the exhibits on the floor, right? He'd take them out and like, look, this amazing thing that I built. Like, you can do this in your classroom, right? Or you can bring them here. And so that's how the Teacher Institute was born, which is a department inside of the museum. Our mission is to create inquiry-based experiences that transform learning worldwide. Our vision is a world where people think for themselves and can confidently ask questions, question answers, and understand the world around them. The first time I saw that, I like got goosebumps because that's my vision. That's what I feel about science. Like what's the point of me learning science and getting a PhD and doing all this cool stuff if I can't use it to like teach the world? I love that you love light. I love light. If you were to talk to a student, like, why is light so awesome? Oh my God. Okay, first of all, light is energy, right? It's an enabling technology, right? You mentioned the word photonics earlier, I which did. people are like, what the hell are photonics? Yeah. Uh, most people know what electronics are, right? Yeah. Um, what are electronics? Um, it is anything that uses um, current and the m moving electrons. Exactly. Photonics then maybe are... Oh, anything that uses moving photons? Is that what it is? Well, anything like... that uses photons. Yeah. So photons are light. Okay. I mean, you control it in the device itself. Like, yeah. that's kind of part of the thing, right? Yeah. So okay. photonics are everywhere, Yeah. right? You have cell phones. Uh, there's so many different parts of photonics in your cell phone and... There are photonics that are used to create your cell phone, right? You have projectors, you have light bulbs, you have televisions, you have vending machines that have lights in them. Like those are all photonics and like light is everywhere around us mm -hmm. and we harness it and we use it every single day, but we don't think about it, which I think is amazing and fantastic. And like, even though I have spent the last uh, 15 years or so, uh, studying light and optics, like I still learn new things every day. And one of the things I love about working at the Exploratorium is that the people who work there, it's all about like our curiosity and like our inquiry. Like, what is this? Why is this happening? Like, I want to answer these questions. For me, light is one of those things that is a really easy entryway into inquiry. Because everyone has Everyone has light. experience with light, right? Everybody knows what light is. Everybody is, knows what shadow is. is. Visu visually. Who visually, yes. Yeah, but even, no. Even people who cannot see, they can feel infrared energy, right? You're totally they right. can feel energy from light. Yeah. Desiree and I did a session yesterday, and um, we talked about science communication and uh, visually telling stories in science and how, like, I don't like the term dumbing down. I don't like, yeah. we don't dumb down science. We're literally just giving people the right words or we're using the words they understand we're translating right I loved that by the way that was amazing but yeah I mean when you're talking to another person in another language they're not they're not stupid because they can't speak English they just literally cannot understand you because mm -hmm. you're not using the right words yes you are not using the right it's mm -hmm. not them <laughs> exactly so. that's the thing and that's the problem with a lot of teachers and professors right yeah. it's like I spent all this time learning about this thing and so you don't understand it and it's like well mm -hmm. you're not teaching it to them right like yeah you're not giving them the language that they need to understand it like you're using your language and you just want them to know your language right they don't like your job is to teach it to them yeah but to teach it to them you have to understand their language right and like that's the problem is that teaching is a two-way street and a lot yeah. of teachers don't all, all communication is a two-way street. All, exactly. All media is a two-way yes. street. And we think it's just, I'm a, I'm a vessel, but it's not. Exactly. And a lot of teaching 
And this is, you know, maybe it just stems from the way academia has been done for so long. It's like, it's just this, teaching isn't science communication. But it should be. It is, right? But yeah. they don't believe it. They're just yeah. like, no, teaching is just like, I'm teaching you something. Mm-hmm. I'm putting something in your brain. But it's like, memorizing facts isn't going to actually get you anywhere. Well, it's not learning. It's not learning at all, right? Yeah. And so, like, that's one of the things that I love about the museum is, like, there's no facts lying around. Yeah. You walk into a museum and you just read a bunch of stuff about something. I take pictures so I can read it later and then I don't. Yeah, I don't ever read it either, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, that's a thing, though, that I find powerful about the Exploratorium is that all of our exhibits are like that. Right. Without the language, you can still understand it. Mm-hmm. That being said, we do have language. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we have a whole team of like science writers who really focus on um, using accessible language mm-hmm. and um, translating that into multiple languages because mm-hmm. we have visitors from all around the world who come and visit us, right? right? We're like a big museum. So, you know, we have like Chinese, we have Spanish. Sometimes we will have like Japanese. Um, and we have Braille in some of our exhibits. Yeah. It's very important to us that we reach as broad of an audience as possible. This is Spark Science, and we're talking with Desiree Whitmore about how we share science with curious people. We talk about this all the time, and I, I'm going to bring it up because, well, like it's it's actually my husband's words, but um, we're both half Mexican, but the other half is not white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, I, I that's am, a good way of saying it. Actually, I like that. <laughs> it's just not, mm-hmm. um, and everyone thinks that's the default. If you're half something, then the other half is white. But we're yes. but we're not. No, none of our parents are white. Um, and and we were you're talking about how like it matters who your audience is, and when you were talking, it made me think of trying to learn Spanish and and Chinese and really even though I just know a little bit I just feel a lot more like I can understand and connect to my family and Mm -hmm. I can I can talk to them about certain things um this idea of like knowing your audience I mean I'm I'm just good at it well thank you you are and I'm good at it and yeah. it's because... Because we're both awesome. We know how... No, it's... Well, <laughs> that's true, too. Yeah. But it's also because we're Mexicans, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so you're Chinese and yeah. Mexican, and I'm black and Mexican. Yeah. And so we had to grow up in these, like, two different worlds on each side of our families. Yes. Right? Yeah. So we each had this Mexican side, which is probably similar. Yeah. And then hey, you had... we've already looked up. Like, our ancestors came basically for the same Yo, place. for real. Like, our ancestors are from the same state in Mexico, which yes. is fantastic. So Guanajuato, we're basically... for those of you who don't know. Yeah, yeah we're basically cousins. We're totally related yeah, it's Wanna super dope and yeah. that's why we love um pork and that's why we love tacos and that's why we love avatar the last airbender oh my god i love I, you because we're related yes. but that's that's what i mean like we're we're very multifaceted people yes. even if you don't have exactly the same like not everyone is going to be half mexican like us like we have this connection mm-hmm. but we do have all these other interests like avatar last airbender mm-hmm. harry potter um physics um, comic, comic books, books all this, all this stuff, and like that's what we use to like connect with our audience, mm-hmm. and I think that that's not really taught, right? No, yeah. To, to be able to talk about that stuff, that that stuff is valued. Yes. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, well, that's a great question. I guess I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's like literally, I. So the thing I think that people appreciate about me, and I don't know, but it's something I appreciate about myself. Yeah. Is so that's that what matters. It is. Um, self-love, baby. 
Yeah. Uh, the thing that I appreciate about myself is that when I talk to people, no matter who they are, you could be the president of the world, like yeah. hegemon or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or you could be the janitor in my school, or mm-hmm. you could be Regina, Dr. Regina, Barbara DeGraff. Like, yeah. I'm going to be myself when I talk to you. And right? there's going to be something we have in common. Probably. And if there's not, like, I'm just going to keep throwing stuff out there until we find something that's in common, right? But the thing is, like, when I was a teacher, when I was a professor, like, I would would reference Apollo 13 all the time. None of my students had ever seen Apollo 13. That movie came out 25 years ago or something, right? I didn't realize until I became a physics professor Mm -hmm. that that movie affected me so much and like it really was contact related that for me ah like apollo 13 was the first time i saw a movie and i saw people like doing math (laughs) like the astronauts were in this thing and they were trying to figure out their trajectory and like how to do what they're doing spoiler alert they get stuck in space it's Um, an old movie they should yeah no spoilers (laughs) i'm just saying right and so like read the harry potter books but i remember watching it and being like oh my god i love math like i could totally do that i can be an astronaut yeah i never ever in a million years thought I could be an astronaut until I saw Apollo 13. Mm. And the thing that was the connector, the language for me was the math, right? And then the engineering, right? They get stuck in space and they're like, we can't breathe. We're going to run out of oxygen. Yeah. And on earth, they're just like taking all this crap that they know is on the spaceship. Yeah. And they're like, uh, we got to figure out a way to make a filter out of all this garbage. Mm-hmm. And they did it. And I was like, yeah. I could totally do that. Cause I used to build stuff out of garbage all the time. Yeah. And like, but th- all, saying all of that to say that like, it's always been important to me to like throw out my references because that's my language. Mm-hmm. And so I'm introducing you to my language. Yeah, somebody's gonna pick it up. Somebody's gonna pick it up. And if yeah. you're not, like you're gonna tell me, oh, that reminds me of this other thing. Which is my language. Which is your language. Yeah. And so we're developing this language. Like in, <laughs> this is a terrible uh, reference, but Dances with Wolves, right? <laughs> like, can we, I know it's let's, problematic. Let's go to Star Trek and let's go to okay, like, go to Star Trek. Um, oh my God. The, um, and and God. Oh my God. Yes, at Tanagra. At Tanagra. I love that episode. It's so good. Shaka and the Walls fell. Shaka and the Walls fell. Oh I hope our listeners get that reference. If you it is don't, so you're good. not cool and you should no. watch Star Trek. I'm just kidding. <laughs> But They're you should cool, still but watch you Star Trek. Still watch yes. that episode. So this is an episode called Darmok and Jalad, yeah. and it's Star Trek: Star Trek: The Next Generation. I don't remember what season it was in, but it is literally one of the best episodes. It of makes any me cry. television show every time. Every time. Every time. It's so good, and it's a really good example of like the importance of language, yeah. right? And like, and what it means to people, and yes. and what language isn't just English. No. At all, actually. Even even when you have translators like Google Translate, they can't do it perfectly because who made Google Translate? The people who speak English. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's such a really, I think it's a very profound episode. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally myself with my teachers. Yeah. Um, Which is, I think, something that some people appreciate and maybe some people don't. Uh, They're just jealous. That's what my mom says. (laughs) That's what my mom used to say. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, like in academia, it's a totally different environment. And so if you're at an academic professional society meeting, um, it's less appreciated because they think you're making a mockery of their science if you're referencing pop culture and doing things like that. But if you're working with high school teachers and middle school teachers, you know, they have to work with kids. Yeah. And so when and you lot, reference... A lot of them watch TV. A lot of them watch TV. Or YouTube now. Yes. Mm. And so, like, they get my references, right? And if they don't, they'll ask about it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't get that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're a lot younger than me. Like, let me think about something else. 
You're listening to Spark Science, and our guest is my constant conference buddy, Dr. Desiree Whitmore, and we can't stop talking about pop culture. As physicists yes. and the same age, we both have watched Real Genius. Please look yes. it up, Val Kilmer. Amazing Val Kilmer movie um, from the 80s. Yeah, there's, there's liquid there's nitrogen, there's giant lasers. Laser, giant lasers. Giant lasers um, from space. Yes. Um, popcorn. Yes. Oh my god, um, I love that movie so much. How accurate is that movie? Laser Chick. Okay. Dr. Laser Chick. So this is really... I have an interesting story if you want me to tell you. Yes, please story. tell me. Okay. Um, so that movie's really interesting because realistic is a, a relative term. I yeah, think, yeah. you're talking about Squishy. it. So as far as making this giant satellite laser from space that's going to come and shoot a little retroreflector and like pop some popcorn. Yeah. And the popcorn's going to like fill up the house. It's probably the not very realistic. reflector is like a um, stained glass window. Yeah. It's like really kind of not accurate in yeah. that sense. However, yeah. I will say, growing up I loved that movie, right? Yeah. Turns out when I got to grad school I ended up loving lasers. Not related. I didn't, like when I started working How with lasers. How could it not be related? I know, in but when I... In the back of your head. In the, maybe it was like subconscious or something. Yeah. But I never made the connection of like, I love Real Genius. I'm going to work with lasers. It just kind of <laughs> happened. And I was talking to, you know, I was like the president of the Optical Society of America. Because <laughs> I'm a super nerd. And that just meant I got to go do a lot of outreach and teach about light and optics to kids and stuff. And we had an advisor on campus who was a scientist who was a super nerd too. He ran the spectroscopy facility. His name is Dr. Vitza Vanderveer. He's still a friend of mine, actually. I know him. He lives in San Francisco right now. We're talking one day and I was like, oh, have you ever seen Real Genius? Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh my God, really? And he goes, of course I've seen Real Genius. You should talk to your advisor, your PhD advisor. I had two PhD advisors. Okay. He goes, you should talk to your PhD advisor, uh-huh. Dr. R. Apkarian, about that movie. Okay. And I'm like, why? And he goes, he wrote that movie. What? This is what he said to me. He's like, seriously, go watch the credits. And I was like, what? No way. So I went home and watched it again. Yeah. I'm like, he's not in the credits. This fool's making stuff yeah. up. But I will watch the whole movie again. But I will watch it again because <laughs> I haven't watched it. You know, I have it on DVD by that point. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. And so then I go to my advisor. And I'm yeah. like, so Ara, I heard you wrote Real Genius or something. Like, what's up with that? And Ara tells me. <laughs> he's amazing. So first of all, my PhD is in spectroscopy, right? So I'm an ultra-fast spectroscopist, which means I make lasers that shoot light that's really fast. I was trying to make movies of molecules vibrating in real time. That's yeah. like an ultra fast thing. Because when we're talking about spectroscopy, we're talking about the spectrum and like the absorption lines. Exactly, and so like... my lasers were different colors, which are different energies. Mm-hmm. So I was making different energy, different colored lasers that can shoot really fast. I was making giant fast cameras essentially out of lasers, which was really kind of dope. Yeah. Um, and so my boss, he's kind of famous in the spectroscopy field. Okay. Um, and so <laughs> he did a lot of work with like with a bunch of different laser systems. Okay. And so I asked him about this and he just starts laughing at me. He goes, I, I didn't write that movie. But when that movie came out, I had a graduate student and the graduate student said, oh my God, Ara, we need to go to the movies like right now. And Ara is like, you can go do with your time what you want to do. I don't go to the movies. The student's like, no, seriously, we have to go. You have to come to this movie. Yeah. And so he says, okay, fine. They go to the movies. Yeah. They watch this movie and the whole movie. So in the movie, Val Kilmer creates this like bromide laser. I don't even know what that means. I've seen that movie so many times. Yes. So he makes a very special type of laser that's made out of gas molecules that he freezes. Okay. Okay. That's all you really need to know. Okay. Um, Which is like, oh my God, we made this crazy laser that's never existed before. Oh my gosh, like Mm -hmm. this is never going to work. And they make this super high power crazy laser out of this gas molecule. Okay. And the funny thing, so then my boss Ara and this grad student are just 
cracking up in this movie because they're like, that's literally what we're doing right now in our research. How did they know? Like, we have created this laser. Yeah. Not a giant one that we're putting into space, but we created a laser. Right? Yeah. So we created a laser out of these gas molecules, these very specific gas molecules, which are halogens, which are like in the last row of the periodic table. Um, And they created these lasers. And there are parts of the movie where they actually draw like the chemical potential diagram. Yes, yes. Those are accurate. So Ara is like, what is this? And like, how did this happen, right? Yeah. So he looks up, like they watch the credits, and like, who was the science advisor for this movie? Turns out he was a professor at USC. Okay. So Ara gave a talk at USC one day, and he went there and gave his talk about his research. And then he goes and talks to this guy. He, like, finds this professor, and he's yeah. like, I have a question for you. Like, you wrote this movie, Real Genius. Like, you were yeah. their advisor, and yeah. I saw your, like, diagrams in the movie and everything. And it's yeah. like, why can I ask you, what made you think to draw those diagrams? And, like, yeah. what made you think to use that particular thing in the movie? And yeah. the guy just goes, well, yeah, I just thought of the most ridiculous thing ever that would never work. And I just put that in a movie. <laughs> and so R is like, oh, well, um, if you would like to come to Irvine, like, I can actually show you a real-life bromine laser that I made, right? Oh, my um, God. Or it might have been an iodine laser, which isn't exactly the same, but it's the same, like, yeah. type of laser. Okay. And so this guy was just kind of blown away. And that was Ara's story. So the answer to your question is it is realistic in the sense that <laughs> the lasers that were created are possible and do exist, and my boss kind of pioneered that work but the use of the lasers in the movie is kind of crap but it's amazing right they shoot holes like through all kinds of stuff which is very dangerous don't do that with lasers you should never point lasers no at somewhere that you don't know where it's going including into space well and their their optics benches were real optics benches were real the lasers are real there's a scene where he like puts grease on the optic yeah and that like explodes everything that's legit that would happen yes you would so, totally destroy the laser. So I remember us talking about how you were jealous of me because I had way more optics in undergrad than you did. Yes. And I actually had a holography lab and everything and made so holograms. Cool. Um, but the professor that did that class, he had this sign up by his lasers, and it was an outline of a hand, and then one of the fingers was cut off, and there was, <laughs> and there was a laser, and it said, keep your hands away from the lasers. I kind of love that a lot. Yeah. That reminds, like, in chemistry class, you would have this sign that had, like, this picture of this woman with, like, dark glasses and a cane. And it said something like, Karen can't see because Karen didn't wear safety goggles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, like, always wear safety goggles. Yeah. It's scared. As somebody who's a hypochondriac and Mm -hmm. just scared of everything, I didn't get anywhere near those lasers. And I don't even think that they were powerful enough. Probably not. They could have hurt my eyes. Definitely. Like, hands down. Probably. But, like. Probably not cut off my finger. No. But um, just in case, I didn't get any Yeah, I wouldn't have either. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. And I'm sorry if I rambled too much, but like I love talking to you. So it was like super exciting. We'd like to thank Dr. Whitmore for taking the time away from the conference to hang out with me for the fifth time in a row. You can find out more about the Exploratorium on their website, exploratorium.edu. And you can follow Desiree on Twitter at Darth Science. Today's episode was recorded on location in Honolulu, Hawaii, at the National Sackness Convention. To learn more about this amazing national organization dedicated to supporting faculty and students in STEM, go to sacnas.org. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. 
Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley and Julia Thorpe. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Is there a science idea you're curious about? Send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.